Today we're studying about the character, young David. Young David. And we see his story found in 1 Samuel chapters 16 to 31. Okay? If you have your Bibles today, I'd invite you to turn with me. There's blue Bibles on the pew in front of you. And just turn to the book of 1 Samuel, and we're looking at chapter 16. This is where we left off last week. A handsome musician and warrior. So it tells us that Samuel went to Jesse in Bethlehem to anoint one of his sons to be the next king. What did the Lord tell Samuel when Jesse's sons were presented? So Jesse had these many sons. And when Samuel was standing there, the eldest son of Jesse came. And Samuel's looking at him saying, wow, this guy, he's, he's handsome. He, this must be the one God wants me to anoint. But God had a message for Samuel. In verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And we read on a little bit more. The rest of Jesse's sons were presented before Samuel. And with each one, each son that came before him, the Lord said, nope, it's not him. Nope, it's not him. And seven sons had passed before Samuel. Samuel asked Jesse, are you sure you don't have any more sons? The Lord told me to come to your house, you know. Samuel's thinking, the Lord told me to come here. You must have another son if it's not one of these guys. So the youngest of Jesse's sons, David, was out tending his sheep. And he was sent for, and Samuel said, Jesse, call your son. Have him come here. It says that when David came by, he was ruddy, with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. Ruddy means like healthy and vibrant, right? And this is how David looked. Now it's interesting, why would the Bible tell us this detail about David being handsome? We just read the Lord telling Samuel, um, don't look at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. Now, there's something about having this ruddy, um, positive um, appearance with beautiful eyes, it said, about David. I believe that this has more to do with when the joy, the genuine joy that David had in Yahweh God is deeply set within him, that it changes the countenance on the outside, that you look healthy and vibrant and strong, okay? And it talked about his beautiful eyes. When your eyes are clear to see the Lord, right, then it brings this vibrancy and this light to your countenance, okay? We see that Samuel anointed David in the midst of his seven brothers, and when this happened, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Now, we read this in the Old Testament quite a bit. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon this person. And what does this expression really mean? This expression relates to empowerment for some God-given task. 
So it's not our strength. It's not what we're doing, but it's that God, his spirit comes on you to empower you to do what God is calling you to do. So God is doing that work in you and through you to carry out his purposes. And he selected David for this purpose. You see, the anointing was just an external symbol of an inward work of God. You know how we talk about baptism? There's no magic in baptism. But as we respond to God, it's just an external expression of a change that's already occurred within us. Similarly, with this anointing and God's spirit coming upon this person to empower them, it's different from regeneration. We're we're not talking about regeneration by the spirit. What we're talking about here, especially in the Old Testament, is God empowering them to do a specific task. Okay? Let's see what it says here in 16, verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Interesting. So the spirit of the Lord goes on David and empowers him all the days of his life. But what happens to Saul? God's spirit leaves. And an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. A little confusing, right? So we open up the Bible. We're like, hold on. What do you mean an evil spirit from the Lord? I thought God is good. I thought he's like, there's no wicked thing in him. In this passage, it's merely saying that God allowed evil spirits to terrorize Saul, to disturb him, okay? Do you remember any other books in the Bible that talk about God allowing the evil? Job. Job was a righteous man, and God allowed him to be tested, all right? Allowed him to come under the oppression of evil spirits, right? But why does God allow this? I mean, the evil spirit wasn't God's spirit. It's very clear that God's spirit departed and then an evil spirit came. God has a plan in everything he does, all right? And this evil spirit, it didn't inhabit Saul. It was outside of Saul, and it would torment him from the outside. And make him feel like he's going mad. Make him feel like he's going crazy. And he has all this rage and anger. And this was all part of God's plan. Guess what happened with David at this point. David was a skilled musician. Do you know what his instrument was? The harp. I mean, that's like, back then, that was a cool thing. Yo, check it out. I can play the harp. Nowadays, you know, you get a guitar. Both stringed instruments, I'm sure David was very good. But they were looking for a skilled musician that would be able to come and calm Saul's spirit, calm his his nerves, you know. Whenever that evil spirit would come toward him and he was troubled, they called for David, and David was, how do you say, he was introduced to the royal court this way. This is how David first got his foot into that royal household. And God was introducing David, who was anointed to be the next king in secret, to come and minister to the sitting king. It said that uh, Saul loved David greatly because of the service that he was, he was bringing. And Saul even made David his armor bearer eventually. So all that we've learned up to this point, David was a young boy, the youngest of eight brothers. Okay, God chose him. 
he anointed him. And that's something interesting about the number eight as well. When you come across the number eight in the Bible, it's talking about new beginnings. All right? We know that the world was created in seven days. And then the next day would be the eighth day, and that's a new beginning. Okay? Um, David being the eighth, after going through the seven and saying, it's not that one, it's not that one, it's not that one, David's bringing about there's a new beginning that God's going to make happen for the nation of Israel. Remember King Saul, he was ruling over all Israel, but they were still a divided kingdom. And now God has a new plan that he's going to be bringing up through David, but David was not yet king. So all that we know, David is a skilled musician. He was a shepherd as well. Okay. The next thing that we read about starts in chapter 17. How many of you have heard the story of David and Goliath? Just a few of you. Have you heard of Goliath? The big giant, the Philistine champion, standing about 10 feet tall. All right. How many of you are five feet tall? Less than five feet? Okay, so like stack yourself on top of yourself and you're still not as big as Goliath, okay? So he was about 10 feet and um, little David, he comes out and um, his dad says, David, take a break from watching the sheep. Your brothers have been out there. Your older brothers, your kuyas have been out there for a while. I want you to go bring some supplies to them, okay? They're going to need the supplies. So Jesse sends David out there and as David comes up, he comes to the camp and he's like, yo, what's going on? How come everyone's just chilling out? And uh, he heard this big call. Goliath, this is what he says. Who will fight me? Who will fight me? Could I have a slide? There's a script here. And the Israelites, this is their response. Next, next, man. Keep going, yeah. The, the first one, man. Who will fight me? <laughs> the first one, man. The Israelites, no response. Everybody's afraid of him. Crickets chirping, okay? Everybody's hiding. They're afraid, oh no, if he sees me, he might choose me to fight him. And they were calling out, send out your best champion to fight me. And whoever wins, they take everybody else as the slaves, okay? You're all going to come and you're going to be our prisoners. Nobody wanted to be the one to fight him. This continues for how many days? 40 days. Remember, we talked about 40 days. Okay? And for 40 days, they're just hiding. David hears this cry, who will fight me? And he's like, come on, guys. How come nobody's stepping up? Who was the sitting king at this time? King Saul. We know that Saul was the biggest Israelite of them all. He stood at least a head taller than all the other Israelites. So he was a big man, but he was a king. Okay? Back in the day, the kings wouldn't go out and fight right away. They wouldn't lead the armies. They would sit and send others to go ahead. We know from King Saul that he always sent out Jonathan before, his son. And Jonathan would go out with some other people. That's what we read about, right? But here, nobody's stepping forward. Goliath comes out. Who will fight me? David goes, who is this guy? He's taunting the army of the God of Israel. He's taunting God's army. Someone's got to put him in his place. So little David, not even old enough to go into battle, just a shepherd from home. You know, he's a musician. <laughs> he plays a harp. Come on. He says, why isn't anybody stepping up? Saul hears about David and he says, 
call David, tell him to come to me. David says, listen, Saul, I have torn open the mouths of bears and lions. I have protected my sheep, and I have saved my sheep from the mouths of these animals because God has been with me. And he goes, if you allow me to go out and fight this guy, God will deliver him into our hands, and I will beat this guy in the name of God, God of Israel. So Saul says, okay, David, if you're going to go out there, you're going to have to wear some gear. And he gives him his own armor to, for size, you know. But remember, Saul, Saul's a big guy. And David's like, oh, you know what? I can't, I can't wear this. Not just that it doesn't fit. But he said, I can't go to the battle line wearing this because I have not tested it. I'm not used to it, you know. So he lays down the king's sword, lays down his armor, and he decides to go down to the river, picks up how many stones? Five smooth stones by the river, put it in his little satchel. Okay, and he goes out to the enemy lines. Goliath goes up. Who will fight me? Little David comes up. I will fight you. You know, he's a little, little guy. But he's all confident. I will fight you. Goliath. Oh, ho, ho, ho. am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. David, standing there, doesn't cower at this large guy. He goes, you come to me with sword and spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And all the bodies of the Philistines will be food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Oh, ha, ha, you got it. Let's go. <laughs> so Goliath comes down and he's wearing his, his garb. He's got his big sword and everything. And little David's out there. No protection, just a little sling and some stones. He takes one stone into his hand. He reaches into his little bag, puts it in the sling. Goliath's coming. Goliath's coming. Boom. And he flings that sling that stone goes flying, and where does it land? Right in the forehead. And it says that the stone went deep into his forehead, and Goliath fell face down. Now, he had no sword, David, so you know what he did? He ran up to the body. He took Goliath's sword, and he chops off Goliath's head, and he holds it up. And all the Philistines are like, oh, no, this guy's going to beat us all. How could he take down our champion, right? Now, they already knew that the living God, the God of Israel, was a powerful God. They must have recognized if God has given them the victory here, we're all doomed. So they all flee, okay? Long story short, everybody knows David's name now, all right? It's kind of like when the Raptors won. And you might not have ever watched basketball before, but when the Raptors won and you were in Toronto, oh, you knew them all, all right? And everybody's shouting their name, and they come in kind of like for a parade. And this is what happens, right? This is what happens next. Do you think it really mattered what weapon David used when he went to fight Goliath? No. No. 
Sometimes I think when we're facing our giants, when we're facing things in life that are tough, we think we need to be um, equipped with all this stuff so we could go head on and challenge it. But friends, David knew that the Lord was with him. That's all that he needed. That's all that he trusted. He didn't put his trust in sword and shield or spear and javelin. He didn't even put his trust in the stones. He went out there in the name of the Lord of hosts. Whenever we're facing a large challenge that seems impossible to overcome, what do you trust in? Are you trusting in God? That he will deliver you from this enemy? So we learn that David is both a handsome musician and now he's a warrior. We read on to 1 Samuel 18 in our next section, covenantal loyalty. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor including his sword and his bow and his belt. A strange passage, hey? Jonathan made a covenant, a serious promise in front of God. He made it with David that they would always be faithful friends. Now here we don't know all the details of this covenant. But what's important here is what happened in verse 4. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that he was wearing. Now who is Jonathan? He was a son of King Saul. That would make him the prince, the next in line to be king. Jonathan was the one that was leading the Israelite armies. And he would bring victory for Israel. He'd always be the one to go ahead while Saul is being praised, right? So this is Jonathan, and he recognized something in David. Remember, we already learned that Jonathan didn't agree with his father's way of doing things. He thought his father had already lost his mind, right? So Jonathan recognizes something in David, that he took off his royal robe and gives his royal robe to David. And he lays it down before David, and now he's saying, I am indebted to you. I will serve you. You're the next rightful king. It should be you. You're a warrior. That I was too afraid to go fight Goliath. So was everybody else. But you, you trusted in God. Now, Jonathan, he knew that God was once with his father. But I believe that Jonathan now knew that God was with David. Because there's no way anybody could have that sort of victory. When David returned from killing the Philistine, the women came out from all the cities of Israel. They were singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. How do you think that made King Saul feel? Okay, I killed thousands. But now they're praising David, 
because he killed tens of thousands. He was a proud man. He wanted that glory. But now, all this big party, the big parade, the victory party at home, now everybody's praising David. So he becomes a threat. All right? David becomes a threat. So Saul, from that day forward, he looked at David with suspicion. As you continue to read through, Saul didn't want to go out and do anything bad to David right away. He wouldn't do it himself. But whoever beat that Goliath, they were promised a place in the king's court that he would give his daughter to be married. And um, David was already told, listen, you could take the daughter. He's like, I don't want the daughter, you know. But King Saul comes back and says, listen, this is my daughter, Michael. For the second time, he's told that he could become the son-in-law of King Saul. I think King Saul felt, if I could just keep, my, keep this guy close, I could keep an eye on him, and everybody in my court, they could spy on him, so I always know what he's up to. Let him marry my daughter, Michael, all right? But before he was allowed to marry Michael, guess what he said? Come, come. And David says, no, you know what? I'm too poor. I'm just a simple shepherd boy. I can't marry your daughter. And he goes, I don't have a dowry. And the messengers of the king said, you don't need a dowry. The only dowry that you need is the foreskin of 100 Philistines. Now David set his eyes on Michael, and she was beautiful. Made his heart pump, you know, and he was just like, wow, Michael, I want to marry her, right? So he goes, okay, 100 Philistine foreskin. Now, if you go out there and your goal is to get foreskin from 100 guys, you better believe they're going to be protecting themselves, you know? Like, they will not let you take that. It is valuable, okay? Um, so he goes out there, and it, the Bible says it just, he took some of his men, and they went out. And he's like, this is all I got to do? So he goes out there, they slaughter a few Philistines, and they return with not 100 foreskin, but 200 foreskin. And the king's like, oh my, that's a lot of foreskin. What am I going to do with this guy? You know, and it's like, so he was afraid of David. Now, I'd be afraid of David, you know, because he did way more than what was expected. He was given a victory that how could a guy do that on his own? But he comes back and he marries Michael. From that day forward, King Saul grew even more fearful of David, fearful of the threat that he posed to the throne. So we know that Jonathan was already very loyal to David, right? That's one of Saul's kids. Michael, his daughter, also loved David, and she cared about him a great deal. And they both knew that their dad was a little bit off. <laughs> so he says, Michael said, David, if you don't leave now, something bad might happen in the morning. I heard some rumblings. You must go now. David flees, and he runs off to Ramah. Do you remember who's at Ramah? Samuel, the prophet Samuel. He went back to live in Ramah, right? And he goes up to Ramah, and while he's there, all the prophets are prophesying. And David's there, and he's, he's hiding out there because he wants to be safe. King Saul hears David's in Ramah. He went to go visit Samuel. So he sends some messengers ahead. 
And those messengers go, and what happens is the Spirit of God comes on them, and they start prophesying, and they join in with the prophets. They start declaring God, okay? He's like, where are my messengers? Let me send some more messengers. Maybe something happened. He sends more messengers. They start prophesying because the Spirit of the Lord came on them. A third time, let me send more messengers. And they too, Spirit of the Lord came on them. They start prophesying. King Saul's like, where are my messengers? What's going on here? So he decides to go himself. And he shows up at Ramah. <laughs> and it says that the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And he started to prophesy as well. He took off his clothes, took off his robe, and he laid naked there in exhaustion before the Lord prophesying. What is significant about King Saul removing his royal garment and laying down prophesying before the Lord? Just like his son Jonathan did, remove the robe and hand it over to the rightful one. King Saul acknowledged, yes, you are still the living God. Yes, you are the true king. God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. Remember when Samuel, at the beginning of this whole book that we've been studying, Hannah had a song of praise when she became pregnant with Samuel. And part of that song that she sang was about how God will bring down the proud and how he will exalt the humble. And here, this is exactly that transitionary part this is really the last that we hear about Samuel at all. And in Samuel's life, that was fulfilled. The proud king of Israel would be made humble. And then uprises the humble David, you see. That's prophecy. We see in chapter 20 a little bit more about this Jonathan and David story. Jonathan makes a covenant again with David. Jonathan acknowledged that David would one day be Israel's king. With that in mind, Jonathan requested protection for him and his family when David took the throne. In response to Jonathan's words, David solemnly pledged to fulfill the covenant between himself and Jonathan. You see, a deep concern and affection was the basis of the covenantal relationship between Jonathan and David. This is the affection commanded by God when he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Now we have so much that we could learn from the story of David and Jonathan. A lot of people joke around and they say, oh, David and Jonathan? No, that was a homosexual story written into the Bible and it's okay. If it was truly a homosexual relationship, then I believe God's intervention would have been very clear there, right? But this relationship that they had was very similar, actually, to the relationship between Ruth and Naomi. Do you remember? She faithfully followed her mother-in-law. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. I will not leave you. Jonathan, I will stand by you, David. The Lord is with you. We will be friends forever. And it wasn't just between David and Jonathan. Remember, this was a covenant. So it's a promise made to God. Okay? So Jonathan would be answerable to God. Where else do we hear about covenant? Covenant. 
Abraham. God makes a covenant with Noah, a promise that stands, you know, and these are serious promises. Believing husbands and wives, when they get married, it's not just a contract marriage. It, it's a covenant marriage before God. So anything I do as a husband, anything my wife does as my wife, we do before God. We are honoring God with, through our marriage. Our vows are to God, all right? And we express it this way to one another. So Jonathan and David, their vow was to God. But if you break a vow with God, <laughs> I mean, what happens, right? This was a very serious covenant that was made. But it wasn't just between Jonathan and David and God. It was between the house of David. Jonathan knew, you're going to be king one day. Please take care of my family. If I don't survive, if I don't live, then you please continue on my family. Take care of them. Now we learn through the rest of the books of Samuel, much of Saul's family ends up getting slain and slaughtered. And there were few left behind. But in the end of uh, 2 Samuel, we see how David, he holds up his end of the bargain. He takes care of Jonathan's son. And you'll see that in 2 Samuel 21. What lessons could we learn from Jonathan's story up to this point? He was in a position to be the next king. And he saw God's favor on David. He humbles himself by removing that position and putting it in its right place. He was a son of the former, the, the king Saul that was sitting. But then the new beginning was coming in David. I believe Jonathan represents so much that we overlook. As believers, as Christians, we need to understand Jonathan's attitude. We need to understand how he was living. He remained loyal to the new king to come. His father was still sitting king. Now remember we talked about Israel being represented by Saul, you know? He was the chosen one. Israel was the chosen people of God. Jesus would be the next king like David. He would be the greatest king, and he was also the greatest shepherd, just like King David. From humble beginnings, being exalted. Israel became very proud because of their position with God. But God opposes the proud, and he exalts the humble. Jonathan, in the midst of this, was able to recognize where the old was going down and God was doing something new. Remember the disciples of Jesus that were following him? They recognized the system that was in place. The system was going down, and God was doing something new through Jesus. Jonathan would represent more of us. What are we setting our eyes on? Are we setting our eyes on the old system and the ways of things, or are we setting it on the new things that God is doing? All right? Do we follow Jesus, or do we stick to our rules and our regulations? to our customs and rituals? Are we religious or are we 
spirit-led and spirit-filled. Jonathan, sitting there, makes that covenant, and he said, I will follow you. You will be my king. I know that you will take care of my family. He chose, this, he chose the right side. After this, we see David. He starts running. He starts running because King Saul, King Saul just wants him dead. He's like, my son Jonathan has found he's good with David. What is this? I'm not going to tell Jonathan anything. All right? King Saul starts to take matters into his own hands. He's like, nobody else. Everybody go and find David. I want him dead. I want him gone. Jonathan protects David from his father. Jonathan stands before his father and says, yeah, so David, he he went ahead. You know, he's not here right now. He went back to Bethlehem. And King Saul became enraged. And he's like, what is this? What is this? And Jonathan's like, please, don't go after him. You don't need to bother him. He's, He's not a problem. King Saul takes a spear and he throws it toward his son, and Jonathan's like, whoa, this guy's serious. He really wants David dead. So he goes out and he warns David. They had this elaborate plan. You could read about it yourself. They had this elaborate plan of how to communicate, and David, David took off. He started running. But before he ran in that field, Jonathan ran to David where he was, and they greeted each other with, a, with kisses and and we're told that, John, that David bows before Jonathan three times. He knows he's going to be the next king. He was anointed to be the next king. But he bows down before Jonathan, acknowledging Jonathan is still a prince. Sometimes I think as believers, we start to think so highly of ourselves that we forget, we forget sometimes what our real position is. We become so proud as Christians, we think we're better than other people, right? And we start to judge other people because they're still living a certain way. No, sometimes, guys, we got to take off that position that we feel ourselves in and remember that if we're not in Christ, we're nothing. That without God, we're nothing. When David went out into the field, he knew he was nothing, but he knew God was with him. He knew that when he goes up against the enemy, God's the one winning this battle. God is fighting for us. God's doing his work, and it will be done. Who am I? David goes running, and it's just this cat and mouse chasing thing, okay? Saul's pursuing him. David's running. David's hiding. There were a couple times where Saul came where David was, and David had the opportunity to kill him. But David spared his life. He he didn't, in good conscience, he couldn't bring himself to kill the king because this king was appointed by God. So if God put him in this place, it shouldn't be David to take him out of that place. God should be the one to take him out of that place. Interesting story. David's in a cave. He's hiding out in this cave. And we're told that King Saul went into that same cave where David was. And you know, it's bright outside, and when you go in the cave, it's really dark. Your eyes aren't accustomed to what's in there. And very clearly, it tells us in the Bible that, do you know what King Saul was doing in that place? He was squatting, and he needed to relieve himself. He was just doing his business. I mean, if 
If I wanted to kill a guy and I saw him squatting, I, I couldn't even do that, man. I mean, like, he's just relieving himself. But it tells us that David got close enough to cut a piece of his garment off. And then when Saul realized, wait, he could have killed me right there and then, but he spared my life. Why? Another time, the Spirit of the Lord was on the Israelite army and they're all sleeping and King Saul was there and all his guards were around him, but they were all sleeping. And David came and took all the possessions, some pot or whatever, beside his head. And he, he leaves and he said, I would have had the opportunity to kill you, but no, once again, I didn't do it. What happens here, Saul and David have another conversation, another discussion. David actually makes a vow to Saul. I will not kill you. I will not kill your family. I will make sure your family name goes on. I will take care of your family. Now, David already made this pledge to Jonathan, all right? He's just upholding what he said. And if Saul would stop chasing him, you know what? Don't worry, your family will be taken care of. Saul knew that the Spirit of God wasn't on him anymore. And David wasn't there to soothe him anymore. David served as, a, as his armor bearer once before. Do you know what the armor bearer does? He doesn't just carry the king's armor. He's the guy that when there's a, the king might shoot an arrow or something and hit a guy, the armor bearer would come up and kill and finish the job, okay? So David was finishing the work that King Saul needed to do before. After David, there were no more armor bearers. The kings would go out. They would lead themselves. They would be the ones to finish the job. Interesting. So King Saul... He goes out there, but he won't finish the job himself. But David, he was the one finishing the job. The Israelites were God's chosen people, but they were kind of going off course. God brings Jesus to finish the job. Jesus, when he hung on the cross, what were the words he said? It is finished. He came to finish the job. Sadly enough, in chapter 31, we hear how Saul dies. But before he was led to that death, he was crying out to God, and he wasn't getting any answers. He asked uh, other people around him, go talk to God, call on God, but God wasn't answering Saul. And in his desperation, do you know what Saul did? He went to go visit a witch. He went to go visit a witch of Endor and says, um, <laughs> witch, he, he disguised himself because witches were, what you call it, outlawed. They weren't allowed to practice anymore, right? Saul had made a decree. Samuel said, no, we got to get rid of all the witches, no more witchcraft. But he went to the spiritist medium and he said, please conjure up the one that I will tell you. I want you to conjure up Samuel. Samuel had already died. So the witch, after some mulling around, oh no, I might die if I do this, but King Saul said, don't worry, you will not 
I swear by God, you will not die. Okay? So she conjures up Samuel. And she sees Samuel walking toward them. And she screams. I don't know why she screams. Maybe she was a fake before. And now there's finally the spirit that comes up. I don't know. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But she screams. Okay? And it's... And then she realizes, oh no, that's Saul. He made me conjure up Samuel. And she, she's out of there, right? Samuel comes up and he's like, why did you disturb me? I mean, God allowed the spirit of Samuel to appear before Saul at this moment. God was still, you know what? He still hears our cries. Sometimes we don't get the answers. We're not sure what we're hearing. But an answer can come in another way. God still wants you to hear his voice. But Saul became so desperate, he conjured up Samuel. Please, Samuel, what am I supposed to do? God's not talking to me. You need to tell me what's going to happen. And Samuel says, listen, you have disobeyed God. You royally messed up, and you're not king anymore. God's spirit is not on you anymore. So when you go out and face the Philistines, you will be defeated. God will hand you over to the hands of the Philistines. And your sons will die, and you will die. He's distraught. What is he going to do with this news? He realizes this king, fine, my kingdom has come to an end. But I know I made a, I know that David had spoken to me. He said he'll take care of the rest of my family. David's the rightful king, it's not me. So they go out into battle. Jonathan dies, he's slain in battle. His other son slain in battle. It came to the point, King Saul, he didn't want the Philistines to take his body. You know what he does? He takes his armor bearer and says, come on, finish the job. Kill me. Just kill me. I don't want the Philistines to have a hand on me. The armor bearer refused. No, you are the king. I, I shall not kill you. I serve you. So he takes his own sword and he pushes himself onto his own sword so that the Philistines couldn't have him. The armor bearer follows and does exactly as the king does. Kills himself. What a depressing end to 1 Samuel. God's plan was being fulfilled. The proud have been brought down, and the humble will soon be exalted. What can we learn about, what can we learn from Saul's story? Saul's story, it serves, as a, it serves as a warning. It's crucial that we reflect on our own character flaws and how they harm us and other people. I mean, when was the last time you did some inventory of yourself? Your character flaws. Am I a liar? Am I a cheater? Am I a weakling? Am I a coward? What are your character flaws? You know? It's crucial that we reflect on our own character flaws and how they harm us and other people. With God's help, we need to humble ourselves and deal with our dark side. What are you dealing with today? What areas are you still struggling with your pride? There are just some things you will not submit to God. There are some things you cannot take off of yourself and bear yourself before God. 
you need to humble yourself and deal with your dark side. Allow God to, to do that work within you. Remember, God is fighting for us, not just with our enemies, friends. God is fighting for us for the very things we struggle with within ourselves. Okay? God saves us from ourselves and our selfish desires. God saves us from the darkness and the evil that vies for your soul. Okay? It's God that's doing that work in you. What can we learn from David? You see here, David is presented as an example of what? Of patience and trust. Do you trust in God's timing? Yeah? I mean, when David was on the run, I could imagine that he thought, wow, God has abandoned me. But he never thought that way, did he? He never thought that God abandoned him. He just kept on going. He had trust and faith knowing that the Lord was still with him. Despite the wickedness and the evil of men, God is still with us. I'm encouraged by David's story. It helps me trust that God is still doing his work. No matter what your situation is today, God is still doing a powerful work in your life, friends. If you ever feel like God is so far away or that he's abandoned you, remember God has a purpose and his purpose will always be fulfilled. And sometimes it won't be all roses and unicorns and rainbows and you know, sometimes God's going to bring you through pits and valleys. He's going to bring you through some scary times. But the fact is, he's bringing you through it for a purpose. Sometimes he will allow evil spirits to test you. I don't want to be here and lie to you saying, hey, listen, life with Jesus is wonderful and you're going to always be happy and you never have to, you know, face anything bad? No, you will face trouble. You will face hard times. The world hates those who love Jesus. But Jesus gives us his spirit, friends, so that we don't need to be afraid. Through this story, I believe, remember, Samuel, it means God hears. God has heard. And everything through this story, God heard Saul's cry, even when Saul rejected God, Right? God hears your prayers. So never stop praying. Never give up hope. Learn to be patient and trust in God. Trust in his timing. Have you ever had an experience where, where God's timing just didn't seem to make sense to you? He holds you back from going somewhere or, you know, we, we might call them coincidences and things start to work out in our favor, but sometimes God does things that we don't understand. But trusting God means I'm not in control of everything. I'm not in control of everything, but I know God is in control of everything. So what I'm doing, I'm just going to trust God's leading me. If you say you're a Christian following God, I'm trusting that God's leading you. And I trust that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. You know? 
Sometimes we think it has to be to our benefit. But friends, I remind you, it's not about us. We offer our lives in service just as Jonathan did to David. We offer ourselves in covenant and relationship to God. Lord, here I am, your servant. Have your way in me. You are the authority. You are the king. I will serve you, and I know that I trust that you will take care of me. You will take care of my family. All right? May your kingdom purposes be done, not my own. Help me live to your purpose, O God. Let me be a man after your own heart, just like David. God isn't looking at what you're doing. He's not looking at your outward behavior, your outward appearance. He's looking right into your heart. What's in your heart today? You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. Nobody is. If there's trouble on your heart today, lift it up to God. If there's pride on your heart today, lay it down before God. Bear yourself before God. We come into this world naked, empty-handed. Stay empty before God. Allow him to bring his spirit to empower you, to regenerate you, to lead you and guide you in all things, to comfort you and encourage you, knowing that you are never alone and God is still at work. God is still in control.